For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. For new people, I'm Tygen Layton, the teacher, guiding teacher at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate in Chicago and by Zoom many other places. Uh, I'm very happy that Ray Rin is going is speaking with us this morning. Uh, so the Milwaukee Zen Center is kind of a sister neighbor Zen Center of ours. Um, uh, we're both from the Suzuki Roshi lineage. And Ray Rin is the successor to my Dharma sister, uh, Fu Schrader, who's the uh, abbess at Green Gulch. Um, and uh, thank you for uh, speaking with us again today, Ray Rin. Uh, uh, thank welcome. you for inviting me. And I'm so happy that our sanghas can do this together in a Zoom room. This is wonderful to have this. And I would also like to invite everybody of you in Chicago to join us uh, in our, with our programs. We are, everything is on Zoom. For instance, next Saturday, there is a full moon ceremony and you may join us at 7.45 in the morning, Saturday. Uh, we will go through the whole ceremony um, and I think uh, you may enjoy it. So, but any other things, of course, we have the Sunday program exactly at the same time as you. So that doesn't really work, but other things I think we could maybe combine. We had a session together at Siena Center. That was very wonderful. And I hope that we can do things like that together again. Thank you. So today, uh, my talk is titled World as Self, Self as World. And this is about our relationship. How do we understand our relationship with the world. I think this has always been an existential question, but right now it seems to be more urgent. World is conventionally understood as everything that's outside of the self, everything that's not self, it's world. It is what the self is attached to in two ways. Either that which it clings to, doesn't want to lose or give up, or that which is, dis, which is dislikes it, what, what dislikes it. It's the, those things that we don't want to be associated with. And this is what Shakyamuni Buddha says is the cause of dukkha, unease or suffering. Because inevitably, we will not be able to hold on to anything. And on the other hand, experience things that we don't like. Dogen says in the Genjo Koan, flowers fall even though we love them. Weeds grow even though we dislike them. The law of impermanence implies that things only appear for a limited time. And there's no way to make them stay around. 
And if we manage to get rid of some weeds, they will sure to come back. So we may have the wish to escape this world of suffering and maybe go to a place of eternal peace. So it's understandable that the Buddha was asked by somebody, and I'm quoting here from the Samyutta Nikaya, Lord, the world's end, where one neither is born, nor ages, nor dies, nor passes away, nor reappears, is it possible to know or see or reach that by traveling there? Friend, that there is a world's end where one neither is born, nor ages, nor dies, nor passes away, nor reappears, which is to be known or seen or reached by traveling there? That I do not say. Yet I do not say that there is ending of suffering without reaching the world's end. Rather, it is in this fathom-long carcass with its perception and its mind that I describe the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. The fathom-long carcass with its perceptions and its mind is the five skandhas, the self. And this is how the Buddha describes the world. It is not outside of us. This body-mind, which is subject to birth, sickness, old age, and death, is the place where suffering originates and also where it can end and where we can become liberated if we accept reality. In fact, there is no objective world. All of it is a construction of the mind. As the Buddha says in the Dhammapada, all experience, which is also translated as actions, all actions, all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. And other translations say phenomena are preceded by mind, led by mind, formed by mind. Or all that we are is the result of what we have thought. It is founded on our thoughts. It is made up by our thoughts. So all these translations are from the original Pali that the Buddha said. So I think it's pretty clear that he says that there is nothing outside of the mind. It's all created and uphold, upheld by the mind. So this self is a constructed karmic entity which does not exist other than in dependence on conditions. Conditions change all the time, which means that phenomena appear, disappear, and reappear constantly. But they do not exist in an extended, solid, and dependable way. The Buddha says there's nothing other than self. And this self does not exist as a permanent, substantial entity. However, since it is experienced, 
It is not nothing. Nagarjuna, the sage from the second century of the common era, confirms this in the middle way teachings, the Mulamajama Kakarika. He says, whatever is dependently arisen, co-arisen, that is explained to be emptiness. That being a dependent designation is itself the middle way. And the the Buddhist scholar David Kalupahana explains, all experienced phenomena are empty, shunya. This does not mean that they are not experienced and therefore non-existent, only that they are devoid of a permanent and eternal substance, svabhava, because, like a dream, they are mere projections of human consciousness. But since these imaginary fictions are experienced, they are not mere names. That may be very confusing. (laughs) Science has for many centuries relied on reductionism, describing phenomena in terms of other simpler or more fundamental phenomena. But recently, I would say maybe the last, certainly the last 20 years, it has become clear, at least to some people, that nothing fundamental can be found. Donald Hoffman is an American cognitive psychologist He's a professor in the Department of Cognitive Sciences at the University of California, Irvine, in the department um, with joint appointments in the departments of the philosophy, the Department of Logic and Philosophy of Science, and the School of Computer Science. He and others have recently found scientific proof that even space and time are not fundamental. And therefore, any object in space-time is an illusion. He's also very clear that this does not mean that there is nothing there, but we cannot see what that is. In his book, The Case Against Reality, How Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes, he shows that humans and other sentient beings have evolved in order to reproduce and keep the species alive and not in order to see reality. Don Hoffman uses the metaphor of a computer interface to illustrate how this makes sense. In the same way that that it's not necessary to know how the computer works, behind the desktop, and it would be impossible for most of us to write an email if we had to handle to manipulate the hardware. So in the same way, we need not see the complete truth in order to get around in the world. Nima Akani Hamed is a theoretical physicist with interests in high energy physics, string theory, cosmology, and collider physics. He gave a lecture proving the end of space-time at Stanford in 2018. And his research group found evidence of geometric forms outside of 3D. And uh, they call them amplitohedrons. There are other 
strange new things that we don't really understand yet. <laughs> um, and also in biology, and Michael Levin is definitely the forerunner in this, uh, in this way, uh, there are new trends that contradict our common worldview. So this is in biology also very obvious that there are there is no line where consciousness starts. You know, what we in conventional physics usually they say at some point, you know, when there is enough stuff there, then then suddenly consciousness appears. He said, no, you can go all the way to single cellars and they all there's consciousness there, even without a brain. So um, and he says there may it may go all the way down. So but he he's careful not to use the word consciousness. He talks about um, um, he talks about cognition and intelligence because that can be measured. But he says consciousness is a subjective experience and it's not possible even to talk about it isn't, isn't right because it's totally subjective. So we'll see what, what happens in that area. It's very exciting, actually. So these new findings in physics, mathematics and natural science correspond to Buddhist teachings about the ultimate non-existence of the world as humans have been seeing it for as long as we remember. But the Buddha also taught that this fathom-long carcass with its perceptions and its mind is at the same time the place where we can experience liberation. It is necessary to first become fully acquainted with this body-mind and not be fooled by concepts of views. And Nagarjuna makes this clear in this verse. Without a foundation in the conventional truth, the significance of the ultimate cannot be found. So we have to find a foundation in the conventional truth. And then maybe we can learn about the significance of the ultimate. Without understanding the significance of the ultimate, liberation is not achieved. Zen teaches that we can experience the nature of reality in Zazen. The nature of reality that is impermanence in the sense of moment, momentary change and non-self. And Dogen says in the Genjo Koan, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be verified by all things, to be verified by all things is to let the body and mind of self and the bodies and minds of others drop away. That is Shohaku Kumura's translation. So this dropping off or dropping away of body and mind may be feared as loss, but we don't need to be afraid because the five skandhas are not diminished. They will be of service just as before. What is being lost is the false sense of a separate self 
which has only brought us suffering. How could you lose something that doesn't even exist? We can instead experience an expansion, the vastness of the universe that we are naturally part of. In Fukanza Zengi, Dogen seems to be speaking about a different aspect of the self. He says here, you should learn the backward step that turns your light inwardly to illuminate the self. Body, of mind, body and mind of themselves will drop away and your original face will be manifest. And he says later, the Zazen I speak of is the manifestation of ultimate reality. For Dogen, this self, the original face, is ultimate reality. It is the same self as in the koan, show me your face before your parents were born. This self does not have a beginning and an end. It is the self of the Dharma realm, where there is no physical reality. It is not of the world, but it manifests in the world. And this ultimate self is not separate from its manifestation. There is no need to let go of anything but our attachment to an illusion. Realization of the Buddha way means a deep understanding of the self and the world, and also realization in the sense of making it real. Understanding alone is not enough. We also need to express it in our lives. The Diamond Sutra states clearly that all the Bodhisattva Mahasattvas who undertake the practice of meditation should cherish one thought only. When I attain perfect wisdom, I will liberate all sentient beings in every realm of the universe. And yet, although immeasurable, innumerable beings have been liberated, truly no being has been liberated because nobody suffer entertain such concepts of a self, a person, a being, or a living soul. Lex Hickson um, was a scholar of world religions. I like his teachings very much. Um, he died early, unfortunately, of cancer. Um, he received transmission in the Soto Zen lineage by Bernie Glassman. And he talks in strong terms about our responsibility to navigate between these two aspects of reality, the absolute and the relative. He says in Mother of the Buddhas, that's my favorite book, I think. <laughs> he says there, philosophically, this paradox means that we must uphold, protect, and even exalt the coherent functioning of relative structures, beings, and events. No matter how unsubstantial They are from the standpoint of absolute truth. Our own reincarnational careers as continuous mind streams 
and the moral imperative of universal compassion upon which these careers eventually come to be founded are not some form of illusory existence. In fact, because it is the proper sphere of compassionate action, the relative becomes more prominent, more spiritually charged than the absolute. It is up to us to use the boundless Dharma gates of the world in Dogen's sense, playing in the world like dragons splashing in the water, like the tiger running in the mountains, knowing that there are always endless possibilities. Nothing is fixed, and we can use our imagination and our creativity in loving relationship with all beings. Thank you. I would like to hear from others, your thoughts and commentaries and maybe questions. We have a question here from Susan and I need to use a different microphone. It's not a question. I just wanted to say and, and I feel now after your talk that the world that we are enveloped in is beautiful and we each have a place in it. Mm-hmm. And that's as good as it gets. Thank you. <laughs> Were you able to hear this? Oh, good. Good. Great. So I'll just add uh, as, as the host so that uh, people, people here in, in the, in the, at Ancient Dragon, you can just speak up if you have a, have a question or you can also come here. Um, and then uh, if, you're, if you're in the cloud, you can use the raise hand function. Um, I might not be able to see your, see your screen. So all the different ways to be called on. Eric, I have a question. Oh, Eric has a question. So, or some thought. No, it's just a question. So in, the, um, in, a, in a broad perspective of your talk, quite a bit of time was spent on relative and absolute. And I, I latched on to one expression um, where you talked about the necessity of expressing this yeah. manifestation of the ultimate. Right. Um, and, I, and I love the way you closed with, with that expression engaging in the relative world. Um, and, and, and I was sort of wondering if compassion, if, if the language of compassion, that term, and how we understand it, is that expression. Yeah. And in the Zen tradition, what, what are the sources of discussion about compassion, about expressing, about this expression of the ultimate being compassion? Curious if you could point me to Well, I think Dogen's teachings are right to the point. So the Genjo Koan talks exactly about that. Uh, You know, the the function of us in the world. Uh, And and, yeah, and the mediation between those two realities that, I mean, they're not two realities. It's one reality that just has two sides to it. Um, and, And we just have to understand that we can use this interface. This is an interface, just like the computer interface. It's It works. You can use your five skandhas. You can use your mind and your perceptions, and you can use them in different spaces. 3D is not necessarily, it's not the only one. 
we use linguistic space, right? We mm-hmm. use morphophone space, all kinds of different spaces that, that they're talking about now. Uh, nowadays, it's it's not just the three dimensional. We we hold so fast to these to these objects. We don't need to. We we can go beyond that. So that's uh, yeah, and and that is the compassion of the bodhisattva is to help beings to understand that. So it just strikes me that it, that it is in this tradition a very personal way of of confronting or engaging compassion, meaning that it's that it's more involved with vow or, yeah. uh, you know, our, our, our personal connection to the tradition. And is that, um, rather than reading about compassion, but trying to live compassion through vow, right. is, is that something that distinguishes them from other Buddhist traditions? Well, for me, for me, it's actually through the ceremonies, that's why I like the full moon ceremony where we're actually renewing our vow and com- constantly thinking about how can I be more better, you know, how can I be more patient, more giving all these wonderful virtues that are there that we can use, you know, and how can I get better at it, you know, because you know, we are all working on it and it's a lifelong and maybe many lives uh, work. It's not something that is fixed and, and end anywhere because conditions change. We have to always respond to what's new, right? That's also why, I, yeah, okay. Next, oh no, there's Dylan and Amber were first, I think. Thank you. Hello, Rayran. I hope you can hear me okay. Yeah. Okay. It's wonderful to see you. And it's uh, great to see Ren and, and Susan and uh, just friends from Milwaukee. Hello again. Um, uh, I'm really intrigued by what you're talking about with uh, the um, measuring, like the, 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 the scientific distinctions between consciousness and intelligence and like uh, going down to the cellular level. Like, is there, uh, can you say a little bit more about like the, um, I guess how they're measuring intelligence or like, I'd love a little bit more background about this. Cause I'm very fascinated by, yeah. the, uh, by the, the concept of consciousness, I guess. It's an incredible, um, I mean, I, I've just been looking at things on YouTube, Michael Levin, and I can send you the, the it's, it's, I think Dr. Michael Levin at, I'm not even sure. No, drmichael11.com, I think, is his, or maybe .org is his um, website. And he has he's doing amazing. I mean, these are young people. It's really wonderful to see another generation coming up there. Um, and he, he actually could show you. He shows these uh, little, you know, things moving around and actually having goals, being goal-oriented, which is crazy, you know? Um Anyway, but it, yeah, it's worth looking at. It, it's very wonderful what, what's happening there. And I see Nancy. Thank you, Dylan. Thank you, and wonderful to see you. And it was a wonderful talk. Um, I was struck by what you were talking about. About um, I can't quote it exactly, but 
um, you know, we are impermanent and, and everything around us is impermanent, but because it has been experienced, that doesn't mean it's nothing, that, it, that there is some way in which it goes on. And I, I was wondering if that is um, related to just the ways in which all of our actions live after us and, and resonate endlessly, you know, even, even while we're alive. Um, that that there's a way in which um, everything that anyone does changes what's happening. So we can bring compassion to the world or we can bring destruction. Right. Yeah, I, I think so. Yes. Um, of course, we don't know. I mean, you know, the ultimate is too big for us to understand. You know, that would be when you're thinking of the computer, that would be how all the little pieces work together there in the background. Um, we don't we don't see that. This is way too big for us. But I think we can have confidence that there is this working. We, I mean, there is even, I think there is proof that prayer works on even on people who don't even know they're prayed for. Mm-hmm. So obviously something is happening there. And I know, I mean, I, I love Rupert Sheldrake. He's also a scientist and also a pretty wild guy. Um, he was canceled actually on YouTube because his tech talk was too dangerous to assist <laughs> physics. <laughs> anyway, um, so there are definitely people who have a very strong sense of that. I, I don't say that I can prove it or, or that I can vouch say, but I, I believe, I mean, If I have any beliefs, that's that's a belief that I have. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you. Good to well, see you. Good to see you. My, you know, my my mom passed over the summer, oh. and in preparing something to say at her funeral, I was reminded of words from the Brahms Requiem: um, "Den ihre Werke folgen ihnen nach." Yeah. Then, then their works and their works will follow after them. And then, and and yeah. it's been something that I've been contemplating over the last couple months is um, that I see all the ways in which, you know, she is still here and still part of, of me and, you know, many other things. And I, and I wonder, it, it made me think of that, you know, when you were talking about this. Yeah. But since the 3d space is not the only space, you know, obviously that, that has mm-hmm. been proved now. There are spaces where we exist in a different way. You know, I, I'm pretty sure that it's true. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm confident. I think so, too. We just can't, we can't see it right now. We do not see it, no. Thank you. There's somebody else here. Yes, we have uh, two questions here in, the, in Ancient Dragon. So I'm going to switch to the camera. Uh, and first is, let's see, did this work? No, it didn't really work. Uh, David Weiner. The question is, is the book title The End of Reality? Oh, uh, yeah. The, um, the Case Against Reality. The Case Against Reality. The What's Case it? Against Reality. It's, it's a great book. I have it. And since then, there has been a lot more work in that direction. So it, it's actually really fun going on YouTube and seeing what people have said last week or yesterday. You know, there's always new stuff coming up. It's unbelievable. Okay, so uh, David's question is about the suffering of others. David is saying yeah. 
that that mitigating his own suffering seems seems like 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 a, an achievable challenge. But but dealing as as a chaplain with the reality of other right. people's suffering feels much more challenging to him. Absolutely. And so the way I work with this is an interfaith work. I actually talk the language that other people talk and try to make them understand how we see things. Not, but not, you know, I don't come with, with Buddhist philosophy necessarily. It depends on which area, but if they want me to say a prayer, I'll say a prayer right. in the way that it works. You know, we have to always make sure that, that we, we work with it, but it, it, it's quite possible. I think there is definitely a, a bottom line where we are very similar in, in many different areas. And so as a chaplain, um, if, if this person is a, is a Jew, you can use Jewish language, you know, or, or Christian language or Muslim language, whenever, whatever works. Just make sure that it doesn't contradict Buddhism, <laughs> that it's not heretic. Uh, so it's a little tricky. But, um, but I think people love it when I, they ask me a lot to talk at, at churches. Now, I have to give a talk that's called, um, that they want me to answer the question, how does the creator God work in the world? So, <laughs> that's going to be tricky. Um, I won't say. <laughs> so I will definitely say that. Yeah, we do not believe in a creator God, somebody who is out there who is arranging things. But we believe that things are created by conditions, right? Mm-hmm. So and and they come from a you know there is a reality that we don't see that but it manifests in this world so i can i think i can use some language that to make it clear for people and they love it when when we are saying the you know the loving kindness meditation or things like that that fits really well and it's not contradicting buddhism so um you know i think it's possible to talk and to have to talk to people where they are and not you know, not talking over their heads and and being, you know, uh, facetious or something, you know. So I think definitely uh, you're on the right track, D- uh, David. <laughs> I want to say that I do that. When I often, when I go into a, a patient's room, if they're Catholic, we're saying they are Father, you know, and, and uh, if they're Jewish, I'll do a Jewish prayer or if there's somebody yeah. do something with a Muslim tradition. It's just for me seeing their pain, that is the hard part that I deal with. You know, that's the part of, of, I want to bring them to a place where they can feel comfort. comfort. But seeing right. their pain is the hard part, seeing their pain. And I just want to add that this interesting, I saw, I read one thing by Cornell West. He said, compassion is without intent. I think that's very important. I'm going to give a talk next week about intent, but uh, compassion just comes forth. There's no plan. There's no outcome. There's no, you know, uh, something that is looked for. It just comes forth. And I think that's something that's very important. Thank you, David. Uh, It's not easy to understand, but thank you very much. And I think you're doing the right thing. Uh, Bryant? 
Before Brian's question, I think that Douglas had his hand up okay. here in the Zendo. So let's see how we can make this work. I, I'll, yeah. I'll clean the camera on, on Douglas and we'll see if you can hear Douglas. Okay. Hi, Douglas. Hi, Raven. Thank you very much for being here. Very good to see you. Can you hear me? Yeah, it's better than before. Yeah. Okay. Um, you had mentioned. Um, Genjo Koan is one source of Dogen material about the expression of compassion as, as an expression of uh, awakened living and ultimate reality. And I wanted to give my plug for Bodhisattva Shishobo, the, the modes of Bodhisattva activity, which is a very short Dogen fascicle where he talks about how the Bodhisattva activities of giving and kind speech and beneficial action are all subsumed within identity action, which is this view, Genjo, view of Genjo Koan, ourselves and ourselves in the world is, is not separate. And uh, right. it's a very inspiring passage. Thank you, Douglas. Yeah, I, I agree that, I mean, Dogen, obviously, there, there's so many places where he talks about this and maybe Taigen can say more about it. You're a Dogen scholar. <laughs> So that would be nice. I would say that uh, almost all of Dogen is about how to express Zazen. He emphasizes expression, uh, most of uh, traditional Zen people, I think. But I wanted to thank you, Raven, for a really fine, excellent talk. I wanted to just mention one other point uh, that Dylan brought up about and that you mentioned about intelligence and consciousness, which is very interesting. I would say that not just um, on the cellular cellular level, as you were talking about, but actually science, and this is not new, but science has shown that forests, for example, have intelligence. Well, there are cells. Well, okay, sure. But trees can communicate within the forest uh, through the mycorrhizal undergrowth, and trees will share... Uh, information and nutrition with each other, even from different species. So there's a definite kind of intelligence even oh, yeah. to yeah, what we think of as not as... Well, Michael Levin goes even further. Anything that's cellular is already conscious. We know that. Okay. But he, or intelligent, he calls it intelligent, but he means he actually means there's an underlying consciousness. And he's not the only one. There's Bernardo Castro. Many of these scientists who were very, I mean, they were computer scientists, right? I mean, they were really in the, in the you know, three-dimensional reality. And they, many of those have become philosophers because they say it's not enough to be in physical reality. We have to bring in the, the mind, you know, <laughs> and, and the other spaces that are we, where we are active. We're not active only in the physical world. I mean, the Buddha, the five skandhas, form is only one. All the four others are mind, right? There is a lot more happening out there, you know? And so I think uh, from that point of view, even, even you know, and I think uh, they are not talking about AI and, and Michael Levin is really interested in uh, healing, uh, healing, uh, making new limbs and things like that. That's possible. He says it's possible. We just don't know yet how, but we're working on that. Um, and also making new, even new, um, like the liver can already 
uh, regenerated self. And I mean, they're amazing things what they're finding out. And it is the basic, the what we're calling now the fundamental. The fundamental is not space-time, which it used to be until almost now. It is consciousness. So, and not everybody has ascribed to that because it cannot be proved scientifically, but we can prove it through meditation. And there is, for instance, Carl Friston. He's an old man. He lives in England. He's an incredible mathematician. He says he doesn't meditate, but he sits by the window for every day and just looks out the window, not doing anything. Well, yeah, what is that? <laughs> Sounds like Sazer to me. <laughs> and so uh, many, and also Donald Hoffman, he says he uh, meditates at least two hours every day, seriously. And so this is amazing for, for me that, and I think it's really, you know, I mean, when, when I told Fu about this, when we were talking about Carlo Rovelli, which I, I, I still think he's wonderful. And, and, and she said, yeah, but we don't need any proof. No, we don't. However, if we want to bring this into the world, this knowledge, we need to use what people are talking about, what they are working with. So that I've, that's why I find science very useful. And, and it looks like, yeah, they're coming around. So good. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you for uh, following all of the, these current scientific uh, way accesses to this. Uh, I would also just add that, of course, traditional Buddhism also includes this. Dogen talks about tiles and pebbles <laughs> as having uh, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. an agency, and also, uh, yeah, it's it's that comes it's, from the Avatamsaka Sutra. I mean, yes. you know, it's like old stuff. <laughs> and but, native indigenous people talk about rocks having consciousness. Right, so, right, right. So, However. Yes. If I come with this, they say, oh, that's this woo-woo, you know, nah, that's, that's metaphysics, I don't want to hear about that. You know, I, I talk to people in prison, they said, I, I'm a Buddhist, but I'm not, metaphysics, non, that's nonsense, I don't believe that, you know. So then I have to talk to him in a way that he, he can follow, you know. Um, it's not so easy. Um, Thank there you. was somebody else, I think, oh no, uh, Brian, yeah. Thank you for a wonderful talk. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Uh, first of all, I hope one day to be able to get back up to Milwaukee to your wonderful center. I enjoyed meeting you and everyone up there the times that I was up there. and It's a, a wonderful space. And um, So briefly, uh, I, I really appreciated your talk. I think it's the most important topic, uh, you know, the two truths and how they really are a unity. Um, and I think it can be extremely practically useful. So just a couple of, of thoughts on how I've found it to be useful. Um, you know, going back to the Buddha's first sermon in which he defines dukkha, suffering, uh, finally at the end of the whole list, he says the five skandhas subject to clinging are okay. suffering. Exactly. And so I thought about that and how it applies to the concept of emptiness. And Stephen Batchelor wrote an essay on emptiness as a prelude to his translation of the Mula Majamaka Karaka, mm -hmm. in which he distinguishes emptiness from fixation. Right. And so clinging, you know, that's a useful word. Also fixation can be a useful word. And I found that very useful for me because in my meditation and even off the cushion, 
I practiced um, when I could remember to do so, being aware of when I was in a situation and fixating on my thought about it or fixating on my perception of it. Right. And as soon as I became sort of aware of that fixation process happening, the clinging to my interpretation, um, that would be like a little mindfulness bell to say, oh, well, what am I missing mm-hmm. by zeroing in on on my take on things? And I yeah. found often that the suffering I was creating for myself uh, was a result directly of that um, narrowed focus on on just focusing on my own fixation rather than opening up which i think is kind of what the emptiness tool allows us to do is is to open up to the wider reality of conventional reality that we miss when our minds are zeroing in so that's just one one thought (laughs) thank you brian great practice uh cornelia did you want to say um well yes actually uh i was also reminded about uh the feedback um so um the idea of that meditation actually has made changes in people's brains yeah so it's going from from that into some back into something physical exactly right i mean that's why this is our main practice yeah you know to uh, because you can drop this fixation, that attachment, for a while at least. <laughs> you can drop it when you're sitting in Zazen. And you can even do it, you know, with a mindfulness bell, you know, anytime when you're anywhere, you can do that. You can always come back into that bottom line. So, and that's definitely the more we do that, I think the more we get, we get better at it, you know, and then we can, you know, we don't have to be so attached anymore. And we can actually see that it's just an illusion. Yeah. And Susan. And uh, opening up the mind to me is it's, it has to be in marriage in relationship with opening the heart. Yeah. Because the heart is what is, is where compassion lives, you know? Yeah. And, and, That was one thought I had. Uh, it's so important to me about this feeling self. Right. Because this is how we do everything. This is how we work in the world, through this body, through this heart, through this self. But also the way we can, uh, the way I access, or I guess all these amazing people, is through imagination. Right. I mean, that's one of, to me, one of the greatest tools of being in this body is that we can leave We can leave and we can go to other worlds and we can explore mm-hmm. fathomless, vastness to right. imagination. It's such a gift to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and imagination also can go further to intuition and inspiration. Yes. You know, it's it's all, it's kind of, it gets even better. 